This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's the Now News Panel on AMI. I'm Dave Brown, joined by Michelle McQuig and Joy Gupta. Let's address our next topic. The United Nations General Assembly met in New York this week. UN Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez reflected on the impact of deep political divisions. Our world is in peril and paralyzed. Geopolitical divides are undermining the work of the Security Council, undermining international law, undermining trust and people's faith in democratic institutions, undermining all forms of international cooperation. We cannot go on like this. It wasn't all negativity. Gutierrez did point out how even Russia and Ukraine were able to cooperate on food exports. Ukraine and the Russian Federation, with the support of Turkey, came together to make it happen, despite the enormous complexities, the naysayers, and even the hell of war. Some might call it a miracle on the sea. In truth, it is multilateral diplomacy in action. Canada's ambassador to the UN, Bob Ray, says Canada will rise to the current challenges. Do we feel the pressure? Hey, yeah, of course. But guess what? I mean, we're used to pressure. We know how to respond to it, and we will be responding to it. But we have always contributed our share and our fair share to every single appeal that's been made by the UN. Michelle, this is a very interesting topic. Where do you think we should go with this? It is a big one, admittedly, probably more than we have the scope or time for today. But I was kind of struck hearing all of this through the UN General Assembly, which got underway. And it's set to continue. It's worth noting that Vladimir Putin is expected to address the assembly tomorrow. So that'll be interesting. Um, but hearing the kind of... of, of almost apocalyptic talk from Antonio Guterres was very striking to me. We're not accustomed to hearing said out loud the kind of things that we often seem to think in our heads. I think a lot of people who might consume a lot of negative news and think, what is going on with the world? Why does it feel so broken? Out comes the Secretary General saying, yes, the world is in great great global dysfunction, I believe was the world, the, the phrase that he used, among others that are equally strong and potent. To try and describe the situation we're in, he outlined a whole host of catastrophes, not just the war in Ukraine, although that has really dominated talks. He definitely addressed the climate crisis. He said our world is burning. He talked about the rise of extremism. He talked about the affordability crisis. He talked about food shortages. There really is a wild amount going on. And when I hear the Secretary General of the organization that, at least in theory, is supposed to play a role in stopping many, if not most, of these crises, I have to ask myself, huh, okay, are things going exactly as they ought to with the UN? Has its role evolved to keep pace with the times? Is it a role that even could accomplish what it wanted to, even under the best of circumstances, under which we're not currently operating? Um, these are just the basic questions. And from there, obviously, there are so many different directions one could go. So I think it is a, a pretty complex issue wrapped up in a fairly simple question. Juita, let's start with Antonio Gutierrez's assessment of the world. I have to say that probably falls in line with how I feel about the world somewhere around my second bottle of wine. <laughs> what do you make of it? 
before I get to that, do you mind if you if I if do you mind indulging me with a bit of a language related quibble? Sure. Uh, and the quibble is this: the phrase that he heard that we heard and that he used was "the world is in peril and paralyzed." Why does disability have to be a metaphor for everything going wrong? That that was my quibble. Okay, moving right along. I actually agree with the general's principle and the, st- the sentiment behind what he's saying. And I think he's given voice to a lot of frustration that uh, people are feeling and the deep sense of uh, feeling like the world, Michelle put it really beautifully, that the world is burning. And he was very good in articulating not just where there was hope, but I think doing a very good job of laying out that there are challenges on every front, political, diplomatic, economic, environmental. And I think it was discouraging in the sense that you then flounder when you hear something like this and you say, well, where do we go from here? Where are the solutions at? And yet in the very act of naming the problems facing the world today, in front of an audience comprised of world leaders, um, there was something very powerful that happened. Joy, did we did we did we lose you there, or was or was that was that your? That, that was it. <laughs> okay, I was I wasn't I wasn't I wasn't sure, and I hope you don't think that we're turning a blind eye or that your quibble is falling on deaf ears. <laughs> Ooh, um, turning a blind eye or turning it deaf. <laughs> um, uh, let's talk about the role the UN plays in the world. We got into it last segment in regards to the fact that it's maybe not as strong as a geopolitical police officer as some folks hoped it would be due to the vetoes that exist in the Security Council, but it still plays a really important part in world in, in the operation of the world. I'm thinking specifically about the floods in Pakistan right now. UNICEF is on the ground right away. That's an organization that goes out there and does that. The UN does, in terms of their human rights work, does a lot of the actual data collection that we need to understand global policy around human rights issues. So to me, Michelle, the UN still plays a critical role in the world. It's just not as a geopolitical police officer. This is it, right? I don't think it's possible to talk or, or, or responsible to talk about the UN as a big tent in, in such broad strokes, because there are so many areas in which it is involved and which it, which it does some really good work. You, you talked about a couple right there. I'd, I'd argue that UNESCO does some valuable work in helping uh, with, with a number of, of aspects. Uh, the food delivery project is one that the UN was help, was instrumental in helping to broker. Uh, we talked about the, 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 the ship with the bearing a UN flag carrying grain out of Ukraine. Uh, that came about largely through a UN brokerage, even if it has cooperation of other powers, as Guterres said off the top. So, yeah, it is very actively involved in some some critical work. But I think that, A, there's a poor understanding of exactly what the UN does and what its various agencies and arms do. And it is admittedly a fairly complex organization, even for friends of mine who have worked within it. Um, but more than that, I think it is also dealing with some issues that are beyond its scope. I'm thinking of this war specifically. Uh, obviously, this is not going to be the body that helps to resolve it. And also on climate change. A lot of the COP conferences have been UN-led, and we've all seen what happens with a lot of these. They, they lead to some commitments sometimes that don't necessarily get followed. Uh, they're endless talks that don't necessarily feel like they're leading somewhere as, as concrete. Um, 
at the same time, the UN is one of the ones that presents data to help really unequivocally sound the alarm on this crisis. So it's, it, I find it difficult to, to parse the UN because of its sheer complexity. But there's no question that it does provide some form of value in certain areas, just not necessarily where people might expect them to or want them to. Joita, I, I know you addressed it a little bit in your, in your opening remarks, but what do you make of some of those arms of the UN that continue to offer it the validity that, that, that has it deserved the attention that it gets on the world stage? Yeah, I mean, there are many agencies and high commissions and other bodies um, affiliated with and uh, under the, the umbrella of the UN that does remarkably good work, whether it's the World Health Organization on COVID or uh, the human rights work done by the UNHCR or, um, you know, yes, UNESCO has done some good work, although I have to point out they've been, they've come under some fire for uh, corruption and squabbling. But all that said, let's go back and crack open our history books. Um, because if you recall, in the aftermath of the Second World War, the reason the UN was established in the first place was to try and prevent further conflict. And I think we can agree that that hasn't really happened. And I think the reason it hasn't really happened, and I alluded to this earlier, is because of the veto that is granted to the five members of the Security Council. So that means they can basically kibosh any sort of action uh, that the UN may want to take. But also because throughout its history, what we've seen is that the five members of the Security Council, i.e. the major superpowers, have themselves been embroiled in conflict. So they can never agree or agree not to disagree. And and so we've, we've seen that in that sense, the UN has been extremely ineffective. But I will go back and say, again, if we delve into history, if you consider the precursor or the predecessor to the United Nations, that being the League of Nations, one of the reasons historians said that the League failed was because the U.S. was absent. So at least the U.S. is a part of the U.N. And then I suppose you could say that one of the other reasons that the League of Nations failed was because major combatants were absent. So after the First World War, they deliberately excluded Germany, then they brought Germany in, and then they kicked Germany out again. And I guess the argument could be made that once Germany was excluded from the League of Nations, what little oversight there was basically mm -hmm. disappeared into the ether and Germany was given a free hand and we get the rise of Nazism and the Second World War. So, yes, they've been pretty ineffective by, you know, by virtue of the Security Council structure that I think I, I spoke in the previous segment about how difficult that is to change. They've been pretty ineffective about curtailing the, if you'll allow me a bit of a, a colloquial phrase, the bad behavior of Russia or or, um, you know, the United States or other superpowers. But then the question begs to be asked, um, would the situation have been much worse if Russia or the United States or Great Britain or what have you hadn't actually belonged to the United Nations and there was no oversight or accountability whatsoever? Uh, the I'm last, reminded. Hmm? Sorry. Go ahead. I'll, I'll go after. Well, the, the the last thing I wanted to point out, and this is kind of a weird one that takes a little bit of uh, it, that that it took at least I struggled to wrap my brain around this is that at least in order to be a, an effective peacekeeper, the UN does, may actually need to have a military force of its own, which it doesn't have, um, and that does. And, and not only would the UN need to have a military force of its own, but that military force would have to be overwhelmingly stronger than any individual country's military force. Oh. And I don't <laughs> yeah. see that yeah, happening. Good luck with that. So really, it doesn't. It, it, the UN has been ineffective in curtailing a strong 
a superpower with strong military capacity. Where the UN has been successful is in routing countries that are smaller and weaker. And again, if you'll allow me to just say this in plain terms, disliked by everybody on the international stage. Michelle, last word goes to you on this. Well, I, I think there's also some value in providing the setting for a lot of countries to to talk and set up some sort of subgroups, regional subgroups that have more value than we hear about, but that do a lot of important work closer to home. But where I really want to end with this is sort of cycling back to something else Guterres said that we didn't talk about as much. He did lay out all the ways in which we're embroiled in doom and gloom, but he did also say at the end that the only path out of it is through global discussion and the kind of things that the UN does on the, on the regular. Um, and I'm reminded when I hear things like that about the the old adage that perhaps some of you have heard about democracy and that it's a terrible system, except that it's better than all the others. <laughs> and that's what comes to mind when I hear this kind of talk about the UN. It, it's hard to imagine how global dialogue, almost ad nauseum, someone might argue, will help solve these problems. But I, for one, can't think of a much better way out. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree with you. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Hi, I'm Ramia Amuthan. Join me weekly for AMI Audiobook Review, the podcast that explores new titles, introduces us to famous narrators, and updates what's hot at the Center for Equitable Library Access. Download episodes of AMI Audiobook Review from your favorite podcast provider.